there everybody, thanks for joining us today for our next installment of our Explore the Bible uh, Sunday School lesson. And uh, so currently we're in the book of Job through the summer, we'll be going through Job and then Ecclesiastes. And so looking at some of the wisdom literature from the Old Testament. And so today we're in our second installment in the book of Job. And if you're following all along in the actual curriculum, our assignment today uh, for today's lesson was Job 14. However, I'm going to kind of do an overview of chapter 4 all the way through 14 because I think it sort of sets the stage and gives some insight into where we are and what's happening in the narrative. And so uh, to start with, um, you know, maybe we're familiar with this phrase, Job's counselors. Sometimes we use that terminology to speak of people who have maybe some good intentions, but their words are just adding insult to injury. Um, and the, of course, this passage of scripture is where we get this. So what you find in the book of Job is three of Job's so-called friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they are seeking to, quote, unquote, comfort their friend, who, of course, is struggling with these things, these circumstances that uh, that have happened in his life. But I think it's important for us to understand um, their misguided words, um, even if they were well-intended, because I think sometimes in our desire and haste to help those around us, who are suffering, we can fall into some of the same traps that Job's friends fell into as they thought about Job's situation and what was going on in his life. And so in chapter four, we begin this extended dialogue or debate, which goes from Job chapter four through chapter 14. And it's really the first of three cycles of debates or speeches that we'll, that we'll hear from each of Job's friends, and we'll also hear from Job himself. So just so we can make sure we remember the context, remember in chapters 1 and 2, we meet this man named Job. He was a man of great piety, um, and that critical fact really underlies the entire narrative uh, but Job was a blameless man. And so Job's trials come about because God suggests to Satan this man, Job, who was blameless and upright. The scripture says he feared God, he shunned evil. So when Satan posed the idea that Job's piety was some sort of self-serving action, and of course, Satan said, God, if all the good things you've taken him, you've given him would be taken away, then Job will no longer worship you. He'll curse you. And so this is really when Job's ordeal begins. But then we know that when Job's possessions are gone, even when his children are killed, Job does not curse God. Instead, he praises God. So Satan tries again. 
Only this time, Satan wants to attract Job's health. And so God allows this. He takes away Job's health. And Satan reasons that Job will curse God to his face. So now Job has not only lost everything, but he's afflicted with this terrible skin disease. But still, Job does not curse God. So now Job is an outcast. He's covered with sores. He's miserable. He's lost everything. And certainly the people who saw him must have been thinking, what sin did Job commit that brought down this wrath of God upon him? Now, it's important for us to remember we know what these people did not know. I mean, we know that it wasn't as a result of Job's sin that he was afflicted by God, that it had to do with something else. But Job's friends certainly weren't aware of that. So having heard of the disaster that had happened not only to Job when he lost everything, but even his personal health, his three friends set out to comfort their friend. And in Job 3, Job asked this question, why did all of these horrible things come to pass? And as we talk about the actions of Job's friends, they should have stopped at this point. Because in chapter 3, it says that his three friends, out of their deep respect and love and concern for Job, they sat silently with him for seven days. They were there. Their presence were there, was there. They went alongside him. They sat. They were physically with him. And yet we know that it didn't end there because after seven days of mourning, now Job's friends think that they have to speak. They think that they have the answers to what's going on in Job's life. And so from the fact of his suffering, Job's friends infer that Job has create, committed some great sin. And this was complete orthodoxy as it relates to their theology. This falls right in line with their theology. Their theology taught them this. If you bless God, God will bless you. And if you curse God or you're, if you're disobedient to God, God will curse you. And so in their theology, they're looking from their experience, they're looking from their theology, and they're seeing what seems to be a curse of God. And so they're drawing this conclusion to say, therefore, Job must have done something that deserves this. And if he will only make that right, he can come out from under this curse from God. So Job's friends are pretty clear on what they believe the source of his suffering is. And yet we can know on this side of it that that wasn't the case at all, that Job was innocent in this way. And it's so in, in Job 3, Job, Job's lament ends this period of silence and mourning, and these three cycles of speeches begin from Job's three friends to which Job responds. Now, this opening speech that we're going to, uh, opening series of speeches 
that we're going to look at today is the longest and it's the most carefully reasoned. And we see in this first cycle, round one, it begins in chapter four with Eliaphaz. And he was the oldest of Job's three friends. And uh, biblical scholars tell us that this is how these debates would often go down. The one that was the oldest was seen to be the wisest. So they would often speak first as the wisest of all parties who would speak up in these debates. And so uh, we have this oldest friend, Eliphaz, coming. And in Job chapter 4 is where we're going to start reading together. So if you have your Bible and open it there to Job chapter 4, I want you to see the beginning of this dialogue, of this series of statements that Job's friends give. So in Job chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Eliphaz says this. It, it says this, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how, how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who have stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to understand some of the things that the friends are telling Job, but it seems here that Eliphaz's opinion about Job's lament is that Job is not practicing the things that he's taught to others. He's t- he, uh, his friend is speaking out and saying, hey, Job, you've sought to strengthen others when they've suffered, and you've told them if they'll repent, if they'll turn from their sin, that maybe God will relent from this suffering. So in other words, Eliphaz is, is saying, you need to listen to your own teaching. You need to consider the things that you've told others. And not only that, Eliphaz goes on in verses 5 through 9, And he contends that Job's troubles are a result of secret sin. Read it with me. Chapter 4, verses 5 through 9. But now trouble comes to you, and you're discouraged. It strikes you, and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways be your hope? Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright that's ever been destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And the breath of God, at the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. So, Job, you've talked, you've told others that they need to consider how their sin affects their life. And that's exactly what you need to do. Your suffering is a consequence of sin. And it's clear here that Eliphaz's advice to Job is utterly self-centered. Eliphaz even claims his observation to come through a direct revelation from God. Look down in verse 12. Verses 12 through 15 of chapter 4. Eliphaz says this, A word was secretly brought to me. My eyes caught a whisper of it. 
amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on me, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. So a life is experience is telling him that evil brings calamity. And so now he appears to this special, uh, he appeals to this special revelation that from Eliphaz's distorted perspective, God, Job's lament has called into question God's providence when instead Job ought to be looking at his own conduct for an explanation. But Job never questions God's conduct. Rather, Job laments his own miserable condition, wishing he were dead. And that's two totally different things. And we can think about this from our perspective, right? When we're in the midst of suffering, when we're in the midst of circumstances that don't seem to make sense, we should not call into question God's providence. And yet it is totally part of our human nature to want an explanation for what's happening in our lives. God, why are you allowing these things? What purpose is this serving? How can good things come out of this? And that's totally part of our human nature to seek understanding as it relates to those things in our life. So then in chapter 5, Eliphaz offers Job a solution to the problem. In verse 1, he says, call if you will, but who will answer you? The implication is that Job's lament is not heard because he is in sin. So not only is Job's quote-unquote friend and counselor coming to him and saying, I know exactly what your problem is. You have a sin problem. He's saying, you may as well stop praying because God's not listening to you because you're in unrepentant sin. Eliphaz is not done. He goes on to say, to which of the holy ones will you turn? Since Job is in sin, there's not even a mediator that'll listen to him. And the dialogue unfolds and Job begins to defend himself. And in Job chapter 5, verses 9 through 16, Eliphaz gives us an eloquent expression of God's providence. Look at it. Job 5, 9 through 16, it says this, God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. He bestows rain on the earth. He sends water to the countryside. The lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. Darkness comes upon them in the daytime. At noon they grope as in the night. He saves the needy from the sword in their mouth. He saves them from the clutches of the powerful. So the poor have hope and the injustice shuts its mouth. So Eliphaz's faulty understanding of Job's situation and his attitude make it difficult for Job to accept these true words. 
What follows a life leaves no purpose for the suffering of the righteous. It clearly explains the answer in the providence of God, but he's not given any circumstance that would apply to Job. His problem is not his theology. His theology is right, that a person who is being judged by God for sin must repent of their sins. The problem is that's not Job's situation. He's applied theology to the wrong circumstances. This is the suffering of the blameless. So let me pause here and just give some practical application as it relates to how we can come alongside those who are suffering in our lives. Number one, our presence in their lives means more than our words in their lives. Job's friends would have done well to to continue sitting with Job. As we talked about for seven days as Job sat in silent mourning, these friends were there with him. They were present with him. He was not alone. And that's a good thing for us to be with those who are suffering. Our presence often means more than the words we can say. The other side of this is um, when a person is experiencing intense suffering, that's not typically the moment to explain away everything that they're going through. Yes, you may have some experiences. Yes, you may have even some answers for them to consider. But in that moment of suffering is not the point, is not the time to apply all of your experiences to their situation because your experience may not line up with their experience just the same. So it's important that we take time to be with these people, to sit with these people, to make phone calls, to minister in a way that doesn't come across as having all the answers, but really does come alongside and serve our friends and encourage our friends and comfort our friends with our action and with our presence. Elipha's misses this point, and so we get we get this first um, response, this first debate. Bad theology, or good theology, bad application. That's how we could summarize Eliphas's um, response. Now, Job is listening to this, and he can't take it. He, un- he understands he um, isn't in sin. He searched his heart. He knows that this is not applying to his account. And so in chapter 6, verses, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 2, Job responds to his friend. And they bring forth this emotional outburst and protest from Job. So look at it in Job chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Job says this, If only my anguish could be weighed and all misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. 
the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. I mean, the Hebrew text here really has this feel that Job is saying, God's army is battling against me. God's army is set toward my life. And the thought of God doing this in the life of Job brings terror to his life. And so Job is really wrestling. Lord, what are you doing here? Why have you turned on me in this way? And in chapter 6, verse 14, Job directs his remarks right to Eliphaz, to his counselor. Look what he says. He says, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams, as the streams that overflow when darkened by thawing ice and swollen with melting snow, but that cease to flow in the dry season and in the heat vanish from their channels. Job is saying, look, you guys are fine to be with me when things are going well. But as soon as my life started getting difficult, then you turned against me. You're undependable. You are not here for me in the midst of my suffering. And he points out in chapter 6, verse 25, how painful are honest words. But what do your arguments arguments prove? Job tells his friend, look, It's not that I want you to lie to me. It's not that I want you to give me words that make me feel better and that are false. But here's the truth. Your arguments don't apply to me. Your arguments don't prove to be true in this regard. Job understands he's done nothing wrong. He's not spoken evil. He's not done evil. He now tells Eliphaz, um to relent and to back off because Job's integrity is at stake. Now in Job chapter 7, God, uh, the, the sufferer Job speaks directly to God and he cries out in verse 1 and the verses following and he says, does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility. Nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, how long before I get up? The night drags on, and I toss at dawn. My body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. I mean, we can hear it, can't we? Job is crying out, how long, O Lord? What's going on here? He's crying out for an answer. In verse 11, we read, Therefore, I will not keep silent, I'll speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I'll complain the bitterness of my soul. Now, notice here what Job's suffering 
causes him to do. Job's suffering causes him to pray. It causes him to go to God with these questions, to go to God seeking answers for the things that he can't make sense of in his own life. Certainly, the counsel of his friends are not providing is not providing any of those answers. And Job returns to this again in chapter 7, verses 19 through 23. He says, Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If, I have sin- if I've sinned, what have I done to you? I mean, Job is saying, Look, Lord, if I've sinned against you, tell me what it is. I'll repent. But he says, Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? For I will soon lie down in dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Job is aware he is a sinner, that he's not perfect, but he can't make sense of what God is doing, and he cries out to God for for some answer. That's round one. Eliphaz speaks Job responds not only to his friend, but to God. That brings us to round chapter two and friend number two. Friend, the friend named Bildad. And he picks up really where Elifus leaves off, leaves, leaves off, utterly insensitive to Job's lament. And in chapter eight, verse two, Bildad says this, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. For Bildad, the issue is straightforward. There are two kinds of people. There are those who are blameless, and there are those who are wicked. And God reveals those who are blameless through blessing, and God reveals those who are wicked through cursing. And even so, in verses 3 through 7, Bildad makes his case, only instead of accusing Job of secret sin, get this, this is pretty important, he accuses Job's children of sinning. Look at it in chapter 8, verses 3 through 7. It says this, Bildad says, Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you'll look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble. Your prosperous, so prosperous will be your future. This is a personal attack right on Job. I mean, why is that? Remember back to chapters 1 and 2 where we saw the righteousness of Job. One of the ways that we saw that was he would make sacrifices on behalf of his children for their sins. He was being this intercessor on behalf of of his children. And so now Bildad's getting really personal. Hey, Job. Maybe you're experiencing some of this because of the sins of your children. 
And man, that must have been so hurtful. It wasn't just Job's own losses. It wasn't just that his children had died, but now he, according to his friend, is receiving the wrath of God for his children's sins. Man, what a personal attack that his friend would levy against him. And once again, we see Job responding to Bildad directly. In chapter 10 and chapter 9, once again, he pours out his heart to God. So we see this pattern. Job will respond to his friends, and then he addresses the Lord. So in chapter 9, verse 2, Job agrees with the essence of Bildad's speech. He says, indeed, I know that this is true. How can a mortal be righteous before God? He agrees Yes, for those of us who are sinners and in sin, we cannot stand before a righteous God and win an argument with him. Job puts it this way in verse 3. Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him. One time out of a thousand. Wicked people standing before God will not win an argument to justify God's justice on them one time out of a thousand. So Job agrees with that. But then beginning in verse 25, Job describes his situation um, in in these terms. And he says, even if I do as Bildad suggests, and I repent, I cannot stop God's will. If it's God's will, to punish me for some sin, even if I repent, that may not be enough to stop the suffering. So then in Job chapter 10, Job turns from debating these things to Bildad to prayer once again. And he demands a hearing with God. Look at it in verses 1 through 7. I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I'll say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Look down at verses 14 through 17. Job says, if I sinned, Would you be watching me, and would you not let my offense go unpunished? If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am innocent, I cannot lift my head because I'm full of shame and I'm drowned in affliction. If I hold my head high, you will stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome uh, power against me. Job is saying, if God is indeed good and powerful, why have these things turned out like they have for me? Now, let's get personal again. This is where we are sometimes in our suffering. God, if you're good, why are these bad things happening in my life? If you're all-powerful, If you're a good God who loves me 
and cares for me. How can you allow these circumstances to come into my life and for me to suffer in this way? If that's you, if that's us, at times know this, we're not alone. Righteous men of God, like Job, have asked these same questions, searching for an answer. And here's the honest truth, not to give away the entire um, book of Job, but Job never gets the answer to that question, at least explicitly from God. Instead, he gets God reminding Job who God is. Really, the answer to Job's question, the answer to our question, God, how can you do this, is God is God, and he does things that we can't understand. He has purposes in things that are too great for us, that even if he were to understand, to explain them to us, we don't have the capacity to really grasp what those things are and how God works in this way. So Job hits the depths of despair here. You can see it in chapter 10, verse 18. He cries out to God, Why did you bring me out of the womb? I wish I had died before an eye ever saw me. He's totally in despair mode. I don't understand. Then we get to round three, friend three, the speech from Zophar. Evidently, Zophar in some way has been listening to all of this and now applies another principle. In Job chapter 11, look at verses one through six. He says, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock, when you say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I'm pure? Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has forgotten some of your sin. So in Zophar's argument, Job has refused to see the obvious. And if Job were just granted what he requests, an answer from God, God's justice would consume him immediately. So Zophar is saying that Job's outburst, that Job's prayers, that Job's debates are not heartfelt lament, but they're self-justification. That Job is simply seeking to justify his own actions because he doesn't want to um, admit wrongdoing in any way. So you see this through chapter 11 with Zophar. You see Job's friends continuing to really pour it on. And in chapters 12 through 14, we find one of the longest speeches in the book of Job. And it's this response. But in it, here's what I want us to see. There's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope right here in the middle of all of these 
arguments. So in chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, Job responds to his friends and he says, Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you, but I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all things? I've become a laughing stock to my friends, though I called upon God, and he answered, though righteous and blameless. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of marauders are undisturbed, and those who provoke God are secure. Those who carry their hand, their God in their hands. So the theories of Job's friends cannot explain the reality of the situation, right? Here's the situation that Job is explaining. Okay, here's your theology. Those who are sinning against God suffer because of God's curse on them. How do you explain pagan people living in luxury? He says, their tents are not being torn down. They're idolaters. How do you explain the fact that they're not suffering? They're living in luxury. So in your theology, there must be some exceptions. There must be some other things that are not being accounted for. So then in in Job chapter 12 from from. From verse 13 on, Job is clear that we can't put God in this box and say, here's exactly what's happening, because that's not always the case. He says, to God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. In other words, he can curse those who he wants to curse He can bless those who he wants to bless. If God chooses to bless those who are idolaters, that's God's business. And if God chooses to bring about suffering on those who are righteous, that's God's business. So Job begins to make some sense of this. And that leads Job to some sense of hope. And in chapter 13, verses 13 through 19. This is a very awesome passage of scripture. And I think what it amounts to is Job's confession of faith. It's him reminding himself of what his faith is. Look at it, Job 13, verses 13 through 19. It says, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Look, here it is. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? Now, does Job do this and go about this in all the right ways? No, probably not. We can see that through some of the things he says to God. And yet, this phrase, 
Though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. This is incredible. This is this brings to us a passage of scripture that we can grasp onto in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficult times. Though he slays me, yet I will hope in him. And Job really expounds on this in chapter 14. So I encourage you this week, maybe sometime in your uh, daily devotional at times, go back and read through Job chapter 14 because for the first half of the chapter, Job really lays out a great um, explanation, a great theology of man. We call that anthropology apology, right? Who is man? And and Job says, look, man, man is full of trouble. Man's days are numbered. Man um, is going to die one day. He's going to give up the spirit. He's going to lie down. Um, and so he gives this understanding of what man is like. But then there's this transition in verse 7 but he says there is hope even in death that for Job even if death comes as a result of this suffering there's hope he talks about the this metaphor of resurrection this metaphor that death for one who trusts in Christ who trusts in God is not the end game. There's something after that that brings us hope, right? And this reminds us of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when the early church was struggling with brothers and sisters who had died and what would happen to them. And Paul says, look, we should not grieve as those who have no hope. For we know that because of the resurrection of Christ, that we have a certain resurrection that we will experience. And evidently, Job shared this theology as well. And so, listen, how does this apply to us? Well, as we've said, through this chapter 13 and 14, we have some great truths that Job gives us to hold on to in the midst of our suffering. But put simply, here's the truth. It's appointed to every man wants to die. And for some of us, we will experience intense suffering in this life. The loss of loved ones, hurtful and, and um, dreadful medical conditions, relationships that are broken, trust that is broken, things that we really care about. We are going to experience deep hurt because of the curse of sin. It could be related to our own personal sin that we need to repent of and trust in Christ, or it could be applied to the curse of sin in general. That because we live in a broken world, we will experience bad things. What's the worst thing that can happen to us in this life? It's death. It's death. 
And yet, we have hope. Because as followers of Christ, we know after death, there is something there. There is something great. There is a resurrection of our physical bodies. And there is presence with the Lord in our spiritual life. We can have hope in that. We can have trust in that. And yet, we can persevere through suffering, knowing that God has a purpose. There is no random with God. There's no accidental suffering. Think about this. God is the one that told Satan, have you considered my servant, Job? For some purpose in Job's life, God put his name forward to be the one that Satan would attack in this way. Why would God do that? We're not explicitly told, but here's what we know. God had a purpose. God has purpose in all of our sufferings, and in that, we can find great joy. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this has been helpful as we study the suffering of Job and the goodness of God.